this year for the first time, we will celebrate the Sunday of the Word of God. It's a new initiative of Pope Francis's um, and other parts of the world will be observing this special Sunday on the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. But here in Australia, our bishops have quite wisely chosen the first Sunday in February for our celebration. Uh, in this way, our celebration won't get tangled up with Australia Day. This Sunday will be devoted to the celebration, study and dissemination of the Word of God. So this is a great time for us at the Revolution of Tenderness to reflect on scripture as an essential source for Catholic social teaching. I'll be speaking with a number of scripture scholars who will help us to understand more deeply some of the passages of scripture that Catholic social teaching documents draw on. Today, I'm joined by Professor Mary Collo. Mary is a presentation sister and a significant Australian scripture scholar. She taught at the Australian Catholic University for over 20 years and is now teaching at the Yarrow Theological Union. Mary has also taught at Boston College, the Jesuit School of Theology in Berkeley and in Jerusalem. Mary is also well known for her adult faith formation work Welcome to the Revolution of Tenderness, Mary. Thanks. Thanks very much, Sandy. Mary is going to help us to explore a very challenging piece of scripture, Matthew 20, 1-16, the story of the labourers in the vineyard. This passage provided the framework for the Australian Catholic Bishop's Social Justice Statement in 2017. That statement was titled, Everyone's Business, Developing an Inclusive and Sustainable Economy. She will also help us to explore the familiar parable of the Good Samaritan, which features so strongly in Pope Francis's encyclical, Fratelli Tutti. Along the way, we'll pick up some clues on how to reflect on scripture. start by hearing the story well a little bit before I get into that story I just want to say something about the scriptures and and this theme because the scriptures both the Old Testament and the New Testament they reveal the God known to the people of Israel known to Jesus and to the early Christians now, whenever I teach a unit on justice, I begin with this very challenging statement. God is not just. My students are floored by this statement. Then I go on. The God of scripture acts towards people in abundant love that goes far beyond the requirements of justice. And I point to the very first encounter with this God as it's described in the book of Exodus chapter 3. When Moses has some sort of deep religious experience in the wilderness and God says, 
I have seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I have come down to deliver them. Now, this really opens up the biblical vision of how of God and how God acts towards us, desiring the freedom and the fullness of life. Now, that's God. Now, when it comes to human behavior, the Old Testament suggests as a starting point, justice. And there's that wonderful expression, Sandy, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that's an attempt to try and modify how you respond to another when you've been hurt. Now, don't be outrageous. The hurt, your, your eye's been hurt, just respond by hurting the eye of the other. It, it's a starting point. But as Israel's experience of God grew and, and developed, justice is shown to be just the beginning, just the starting point. And they actually moved to a much richer demand. Uh, you must love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole strength, and your neighbor. So Sandy, here there's a shift from uh, justice to love. I love it, Mary. And this is really what Pope Francis is doing so much yeah. in his teachings too, isn't it? That's right. That That's people right. tend to think of Catholic social teaching as being ideas about justice, mm. whereas Francis is, is emphasising mercy and care and exactly. love, exactly. the heart of the teachings. Mm. So now, of course, love takes injustice, but it goes far beyond just reciprocal requirements. Uh, so this statement of values draws on the generosity and the abundance of God's love towards us. And you're so, telling us too how this is a story that unfolds in scriptures in the experience of the people and we see this also in the way that Pope Francis approaches people and their their journey it's, it's very much about accompaniment and taking our next steps and, exactly. and moving more and more deeply towards the fullness of love yeah and and Pope Francis actually demonstrates that it's the poor and the most vulnerable who are in need and who cry out for our attention. So in Israel, they were constantly told to look out for the most vulnerable. And this phrase, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, the people who could appear to have no rights, no status, no standing. Now that's the people who had a claim on Israel. And I think we see that in, in the writing and in the behaviour of Francis. And these days we talk about that often as an option for the poor or a preferential love yes. for the poor. Yes, yes. When we turn to Jesus, he mainly taught in stories, in parables. And as you mentioned, the story in Matthew is one of my favourites for starting any discussion on Christian justice 
the parable called, as you said, the laborers in the vineyard. And here, the landowner goes out in the morning to hire people to work. And he negotiates with them what they think will be a fair wage. So let's say $150 for a day's work. Does that sound fair to you, Sandy? Could be more. It's better than, well, it's better than the old job start. <laughs> well, okay, good. So, <laughs> Which is not enough to live on. And, which, so, and that's part of the big campaign that's uh, going on right moment. now, that our social uh, security net is, is not really giving people what they need to live. Mm. You can't live on 40 or $50 a day in Australia now. Mm. $150, i am sure people would be much happier. Okay, $150, that, that's a starting point. So they go out and then the owner comes back and, and he finds some more people. This time it's around midday, around noon. And he says to them, what are you doing hanging around? Come and work for me and I'll pay you whatever's right. Then again, afternoon tea time, three o'clock, he finds more people and he sends these off. Then as the, Jesus tells the story, at the end of the day, the workers all line up for their pay. Now, the three o'clock ones arrive and he gives them $150. Then there come the ones who came at noon. They also get $150. And the ones he hired in the morning, they get $150. Is the vineyard owner being just? And I think that's a question that I'm not sure we ask enough whenever we read this or hear this parable. And as a teacher, when I've worked with students, I get them to talk about it. How would you feel if you were one of the nine o'clock workers? I ask them to imagine the conversation in the pub that night among the workers who'd go back to work for the owner the next day. Oh, some say, oh yes, I would. And others say, no, I wouldn't. He spent all his money, he mightn't have enough. <laughs> others talk about wanting to form a union. <laughs> so. So it really does challenge that idea of, of contractual justice. Contractual justice, that's exactly right. So the parable ends with the landowner talking about being generous. So he correctly says to the nine o'clock grumblers, I paid you what we agreed on. The amount you thought was fair. What's the problem with me being generous? And it does make me wonder what called for such generosity? Uh, did he see in those people standing around at 12 o'clock a group of people we might call the permanently unemployable? Either because of age, they're people who've been in work but were retrenched and now are considered too old for somebody else to take on? Or are they very young people who, for whatever reason, 
just give an appearance of mm, I'm not sure they work hard enough. So something in these people calls forth a generous response. That's my imagining. So we move from a sense of um, contractual justice to one really of distributive justice. Yes. To, to, yeah, I, I, I even hesitate with the word justice that, because, it, you know, that's not my field. But certainly we've moved beyond contract thinking. You yeah. do this and I'll give you that. To generosity. To what do you need? It, it's not about what you deserve. It's what do you need? Does that make more sense? Yes, and that that's really more the basis of distributive justice. Okay. That people have what that people should have what they need, rather than uh, a more peaceful. Well, thinking exactly about workers in vineyards and people picking fruit right now in Australia. Exactly. It's usually piecework, and if you're young and fit and you're able to pick a lot of fruit quickly, you're mm. going to earn more than other people. And is it even a just wage anyway? We can come back to that because I've interrupted the flow of your your unpacking of the parable. No, for us. but it's making it real. It's making it real, Sandy, for people today uh, and people in our Australian society. Um, how do we work out what's fair? And you're you're saying we should be looking at what's needed not just uh, you work these many hours you get this yes should there be a minimum wage and how do we calculate that how do we make sure it does actually give people what they need to live A couple of other parables came to mind, um, and you, you actually, in your first email to me, mentioned this one. Um, because when Jesus was challenged on his values, he quoted the scriptures of Israel. You must love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. So then he was asked, well, who is my neighbor? And once again, he doesn't really give an answer. <laughs> he gives a very challenging story. The story we all know, the Good Samaritan. Mm. Well, I'd like to put the Good Samaritan in an Australian context. What might it look like in Australia? Now, a tiny bit of background's needed, and we've really got to get a sense of the terrible uh, conflict and prejudice that existed between the Jewish people at the time of Jesus and the Samaritans. They had a long history of division. The southern group were called Judeans or Jews, but a northern group were called Samaritans. They, they And because of uh, violence in their history, being overtaken by another country, this division formed. But the people down south, the Judeans, looked on their northern neighbours as half-castes, as Jews who'd intermarried with foreigners, with non-Jews. 
And so there was a terrible prejudice, a prejudice that broke out sometimes in real fighting and destroying property. So let's take it to the outback. Um, you notice that this is a typical storytelling technique. You've got three characters, uh -huh. right? You've got the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, um, the the English, the Scot, the Irish, or the English, the Scot, the Australian. It's typical storytelling technique. So here we are. And I'm setting my story in Outback Australia. And we've got an English tourist who'd been driving around the outback and he's run into trouble. His car has broken down and he didn't know he really should always take a large supply of water when you drive in the outback. So here he is on the side of the road waiting to wave somebody down for help. Now, a car appears, a Porsche. Driven in the by outback? The, in the outback. <laughs> it's a local member. I see. Okay, local member. And he's rushing back to a meeting. All he does is he swerves out of the way and continues on thinking, oh, look, someone else will help him. I don't have time. I've got to get to this meeting. Okay. A day goes by. It's hot. He still hasn't got water. The car is still broken down. And another car appears in the distance. Let's say this time it's driven by the Archbishop on his way to perform an ordination. Now, he too can't afford to be late. He drives past. Then late in the day, he sees an old ute driven by an Aboriginal stockman. And this ute does stop even though for this stockman, his family, his tribe have lost their country. Their country's been given over to a coal mining, but he provides the tourist with water and shade, then takes him into the nearest town to get some more help and, and, and get the car towed in. So, Sandy, that to me is a reasonably equivalent picture of what it might look like in Australia. A person driven from their own land, no rights, not mentioned in our constitution, people who were not even seen when white Europeans came to the land and called the land terra nullius, you know, an empty land. Meanwhile, there were all these people standing on the shore. <laughs> Crazy. But this person acts from a place of humanity. He's able to act with generosity. So when I think of what the scriptures, how they challenge us to act, Justice is a starting point. But then from justice, we need to also move to a place of something much harder, a place of being able to forgive. So it's no longer an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but 
to, to be able to have the inner freedom, the strength of character to forgive and to act with generosity and love. So that would be my reflection on it, Sandy. Thank you so much, Mary. Yes, I think we can miss this in the focus on justice, that it's, it is only a starting point. It's the barest minimum. It, it's Christianity 101. <laughs> First Sometimes point. even that is hard enough. <laughs> well, it is hard enough, exactly. But let's not forget, it's not the goal, it's not the degree, it's just 101. <laughs> yes, and that can be quite um, a difficult thing to get people past when you move from the interpersonal level to the social level, uh, that sometimes we're prepared to accept justice in public policy mm-hmm. rather than push for something more than justice in public policy, to push for for love, for generosity, for inclusivity, for, for really truly valuing everyone. You know, this past terrible COVID year, I think I've seen in my own neighbourhood people reaching out to others in a lovely way. So with the library shut, books appear on people's fence, take some, leave some. And it happens. So there's a rotation of books going on in the neighbourhood, just putting them out. Someone else has got a seeds, a seed library. Want some seeds? Here's some seeds. Try these. Um, Neighbours calling in saying, look, I live down the road. If you need anything, here's my phone number. So I think that's been lovely. If we haven't just cocooned ourselves away in selfishness but have also reached out in a caring way to others yeah yeah i think we've seen every part of that parable played out during this COVID year haven't we we've seen the the grabbing the last roll of toilet paper we've seen the not worrying about other people we've seen the refusal to wear masks because my freedom is more important than your health i know um not that everyone is, is able physically to wear the mask. Some people have good medical reasons why they can't, I hasten to add. But uh, certainly where I live, I see reckless behaviour too. Right. So, yes, we, these, these are not once upon a time stories. No, no. They're, they're the stories that are lived out every day. Here in Australia, I'm in Victoria. Where are you, Sandy? I'm in Sydney, in Manly. Okay, so are you in deep, deep, deep lockdown? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I am in the Northern Beaches local okay. government area. So okay. we um, we spent Christmas and the New Year locked down. Right. We were able to celebrate Christmas Mass in our parish, which was okay. a great um, sadness after all that we'd done to try to work out a COVID safe way of doing it. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. So Our experience, had, I think, in different parts of the country has been quite different. Yeah, that's right. It has. Yes, we we had quite a severe lockdown um, for over two months. So, yeah. but um, generally, I'd say people thought, no, this is the only way we can get on top of it. And when you look at what happens overseas, you say, thank God, I'm Australian. 
yes, it was really quite inspiring to see the way in which people in Melbourne really took on board the restrictions and, and coped with oh, such a long, oh, hard lockdown, oh, really understanding that it was necessary for the common good. Oh, Quite disappointing to hear other discourses that um, were so obsessed with small personal freedoms in the right. face of something that was actually threatening the lives of others. Sandy, you just used the word common good. Mm. I think that's a really important um, Australian value. Uh, that I don't readily see overseas, whether it goes back to uh, our early beginnings as a nation, where it was tough, where the, the so-called mateship mm. <laughs> was absolutely necessary, where even if neighbours fought over land, come the bushfire, they all helped each other. So the sense of it's not just me and my individual likes. I need also to think of the people around me. The, 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 call it the commonwealth. <laughs> the, yeah, it's, yeah it's, I think it is a value that we, we do hold, uh, but as always, we don't hold it perfectly. No, you know, no. we, we have the, the experience of positively upholding that, um, but we have weaknesses in it too we do have a sense of caring uh, about the good of all of us but sometimes our sense of who are us and who are them can be restricted again like the the story of the Samaritan the the we and they and us is going on in that story who who are the us that we care about and you know, I notice too the way language changes. So when I'm, I, I go back thinking about the war in Vietnam and when refugees came to our country, they were called the boat people. And my sense, my memory of that time is that they were helped because they were, that's, they were looked on as people fleeing from you know, a, a communist government. Then we started to call them asylum seekers. Then they were being called illegal, okay, illegal migrants. And the whole thing of refugee seeking asylum, what does that mean? We lose in the way they are named and often, often and wrongly being named as illegal. It's not illegal. And even the refusal to use people's names and to call them by numbers yes the systematic dehumanization yes Mm. so it's easier to forget about them Mm. yes and we can kid ourselves that we're concerned about the good of all of us by making them non-people who don't count as part of all of us that's right exactly the same as uh, the first europeans did the, to, towards the Aboriginal people in the country. We don't see them as real people. They're not even counted in, in the census until, what, 1966, 67? So, Flora and fauna before yeah, then. Yes. Uh, a woman I know, an Aboriginal woman, her birth record wasn't found <laughs> where you'd normally find birth records. It was found listed under the stock listed on the stock of a station, you know, 
so many um, so many young bulls born, so many young cows born, and and two Aboriginal girls. And this is living memory. This is yeah. living memory. That's right. So anyway. So, so we've come some way, but we also have a way to go. We've got a way to go. But I do think if we can learn to reflect on the scriptures as the real experience, coming out of the real experience of real people, um, yes, written a long time ago, so they have different images, different language, they tell their story differently to us, but behind it, is the experience of real people struggling with questions. Who is this God? What does this God want? How does this God want us to live? What are our responsibilities to, to one another? Those sorts of questions. Mm. And coming up with the best answers they have. Yeah, so in a way, they're more like wisdom stories than, uh, than literal truths. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's mm. kind of... A, one of the problems we can have in trying to to understand scripture is to take the words very very literally yes. and get really concerned about that when in fact they're meant to be stories to help us to understand human experience aren't they mm, they are stories to help us live uh, liken them to the the stories told by the aboriginal people their stories are told to, to teach the next generation how to live, uh, where to find water, <laughs> uh, who, who are the people they can marry and who they can't marry. And there are stories behind all this. Well, to my mind, the scriptures offer such stories, tested in time, and so held to contain a truthful, this is true to our experience of God. Mm. Mm. So for those of us who are not scripture scholars and aren't skilled in languages and can't read things in their original oh, no. text, it can be really helpful to be able to speak with people like yourself who would know, for instance, what, what is a denarius? <laughs> you know, what does that yes. mean to be paid one denarius? <laughs> That's right. You know, enough, a, a day's labour. So, okay, we don't have a $150 coin, <laughs> but that's, that's about what it was worth. Yeah, it was pretty much the living wage of the day. The living wage of the day, that's right. Yeah. So it's very good for us to be able to speak with you and to get that kind of background to the story. Um, uh, one of the reasons Pope Francis established this Sunday of the Word of God is really to pick up from the Second Vatican Council's encouragement to us all to engage with Scripture, to That's study right. and reflect upon Scripture, which hasn't um, before then been much of a strength for Catholics, one could say. No. That's, that's perfectly true. In, in teaching, uh, particularly at ACU, we've had a wide variety of, of religious groups coming. Uh, I'd notice in my classes, I'd have a group, sometimes have a group of people who really knew their scriptures, 
So I'd be saying something and half looked, I don't know what you're talking about, and someone else would be saying, yeah, that's like what it says in the prophet Isaiah or Jeremiah. And I went over to a group one time and said, how do you know the scriptures so well? I said, oh, we're Protestants. (laughs) (laughs) So, and and they told us their experience. We have been a bit inclined to see it as the job of the priest on Sunday is to tell us what the scriptures mean. What would you say about that to to our listeners? Utterly ignorant because, I mean, if we can read any book, we ought to be doing our own searching um, instead of relying on it being translated, mediated through someone who who may have done a couple of years of scripture background, but not not all the priests are experts in the scripture. They may have put more focus on parish management or put more of a focus on spirituality or put more focus on the catechism of the Catholic Church. Or Vatican documents, you know, but to actually find a way to read and understand and explore, explore, mm. be playful with the scriptures, use your imagination, um, come to Y to you. There you go, there's an ad. Yeah, and there are also so many. Um movements that help us to reflect on scripture too and simple things like parish prayer groups yes where we can simply read and reflect on scripture by ourselves yes Um, i think sometimes we worry about getting it wrong when we're reflecting together without um, a knowledgeable person with us Um, but the word of god is living as well isn't it so when we pray with scripture it may not actually in my view um be such a problem if we get it wrong in no. terms of the historical um, meaning yeah. of the thing. How is the living word of God speaking to me today exactly. when yeah. I read and reflect on this story? Yes. Sandy, last year during Advent and really because of COVID, um, YT, YT, again, this is an ad, YT, we offered um a night, uh, an hour each week reflecting on the coming gospel for Advent. Mm. So we had four scriptures people, somebody who did the Old Testament, two who did the Old Testament, the the first reading, the Psalm, and then uh, the New Testament reading, and I did the gospel. And we're going to do the same for Lent. Because of Zoom, it means we're able to we had people listening in from uh, from Israel. Wow. Um, uh, so that pe- literally from around the world. And we had a great number. We had a, a, about 130 that first night. And, and they stayed. And it was free. We didn't, weren't charging anyone anything. Um, Marvellous. It was a way of reaching out and, and just trying to say, this is the reading coming up this Sunday. Now, here's its background. Here's a way of thinking about it. And it went down very well. And I think this is one of the, um, the 
I hesitate to use the word benefits, but one of the things that we've learnt in this past year when we've not been able for such a long time to, to physically attend Mass, that so many efforts were made to help us to continue to, to pray and to be in communion with one another and with God. Yes. And so many organisations offered free resources and we yes. all learnt to Zoom and yes. and we were able to access all of these sorts of things. I, I think it's actually deepened and enriched the spiritual lives of so many people. Yes. We've had to be more proactive and to make those more, um, yeah, to, to take more responsibility ourselves. That's right. For reflecting right. on the scriptures. And there, there are uh, books, um, behind me you can probably see things like oh well the friendly guide series put out by uh, garrett publications they're very readable and they're written for adults not for children they're written for adults but they're not highly academic in their style they're based on good academic work but they're communicating in a way for ordinary adults to pick up, read and and be educated. Mm, and that's exactly the kind of thing that Pope Francis was speaking about in the document in which he announced the Sunday of the Word of God. He was encouraging those who preach to use simple direct language and exactly. to make connections with the lives of the people with whom they were speaking. Yes, yes. And I su suppose because I've been a teacher, I, I you know, began in primary teaching, then secondary, then tertiary. Um... When I'm teaching the Gospel of John, which people find very difficult, I say, read it for clues, look for clues. Read it as you read an Agatha Christie murder mystery because the gospel author will give you clues. You know, he'll, um, about how to read it. And so I constantly point out, here's another clue. Here's another clue. And as you read, by the time you get to the passion story in John, all the clues come together and make sense but you've got to learn to read it looking for the clues things that are puzzling yeah. uh, that's a wonderful tip <laughs> yeah it's so much more approachable than talking about hermeneutical keys oh my god <laughs> <laughs> spell hermeneutic right no 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 look for clues um be aware of what's puzzling be aware of all Here's a word I've never met before, or this looks like it's a Jewish word I might need more information about. But we can do that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not beyond us. Yeah. Yes, and to I think that's also a really good tip that sometimes the point of the story is that something doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Rather, and sometimes we expect the Bible to tell us answers. Oh, well, Sandy, I'm going to give you an answer now. The answer's 12. <laughs> What's the question? There you go. See, exactly. Unless you know the question, the answer's meaningless. I could be asking you um, how many apostles, how many months in the year, um, how many days before your holiday, 
So the, the number 12 is meaningless as an answer unless uh, uh, you know the question. And perhaps asking the right question. Why does and, the question matter? That's right. And that, this is where students are very helpful because mm. students will ask a question often that I've never thought of. And because it comes from a different place, it, it, it pushes me to think deep more, to think more uh, deeply um, or to go, go and do some research because I've never thought of that question. So I say, oh, that's a good question and I write it down. Um, I'm just looking up a passage when you talked about the word of God and I know it's in the book of Deuteronomy but I can't quickly put my hand on it. Um, I feel so comforted that even a scripture scholar has that experience. Yes, it's, it's, it's Moses talking to the people saying, um, you know, the word is not beyond your understanding. It is not over the seas. It is not in the heavens. It is in your heart. You know? And I, I think you know, the word can be close to us and, and, and that's how I understand scripture. And maybe this could be a whole other conversation, but is the word only in scripture? Mm, well, that's, yeah. Every day am I making a new scripture in my living? Because I'm in the habit of journal writing. And so reflecting on my life, in time, sometimes I begin to see something that I mightn't have seen at first. A word of God coming to me. That's how I see it. And the word is present too in the whole of creation. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. You're talking to someone who likes tenting, going ah. and um, yeah, getting really close to nature uh, yeah, in my tent. And I think that's something we're becoming more attuned to in these last years, particularly with Pope Francis's teachings around ecology and integral ecology, that, uh, yes, the, the word of God is manifest in, in the Anyways. book of scriptures and also in the book of nature, in our lives, in our hearts. Mm. It's, it's a very um, Ignatian, very Jesuit thing that he, he makes us uh, attend to our hearts. I, I wrote a book for uh, probably year seven, year eight, The Two Hands of God. And it looks at the, the scientific story of God reaching out to us and also then that moving into the story, the scriptures as, a, as a, a, another way of God reaching out to us. So the two hands of God, God reaching out in, in nature, in the world around us, and reaching out to us through in the scriptures. So, yeah, yes, because the book of scriptures actually points us to the incarnation as well. Yes. And so God continues to be active in and through the world and in and through us. Yes. The, the, the book is not the end of the story. No, no, it's the, it's the, it's a starting point. Yes. 
And if you're talking about the Word of God Sunday, I mean, that's the main uh, title of Jesus. The Word was made flesh. So the revelation, the Word of God's revelation, ultimately shared our very life, became flesh. Important. That's incarnation for you. <laughs> it's one of my favourite passages the word became flesh yes and and it is flesh it's not the word became a human mm. and see the biblical idea of flesh is uh, anything that's been created uh-huh. it's anything that is temporal that has a, a use by date <laughs> right. so, so Flesh doesn't just mean human life or animal life. It means tree life. It means my computer. It means my watch. Anything at all that is uh, has come into being and in time will, um, yeah, I don't know what happens to a watch dissolved if it's thrown away eventually. But um, anything that does not have eternal life. Wow. Only God has life, eternal life. Flesh does is something that's contingent, bound by time. So the word becoming flesh is really entering into the whole of created life, moving out of uncreated life. Wow. That's just making my brain explode. Yeah. <laughs> it has so in, enormous implications for our cosmology, doesn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. See, in um, in the creed, we say uh, he became man. Mm. Right? That's the creed. But that's not what the Gospel of John says. Mm. John says the word became flesh. Yes. Among us. So it really enters into um, time-bound reality time now, not eternity uh, unless of course by gift because John but it continues on to talk about uh, being given the gift of becoming the children of God so entering into the timelessness of God mm. yes sometimes we say things that are true but not the whole story well that's correct yes. yeah yes. To, to become flesh is the incarnation was quite specific. Jesus was in time and place and was a, a man from a culture and he was male. It was very specific and concrete. Exactly. But that's not the whole of the meaning of became that's flesh. Right. That's that's correct. And when we think about that, Sandy, students get mixed up between using Jesus and Christ. Mm. Right. When, you, when you're thinking of the historical person, then it's more accurate to speak of Jesus. But when you're speaking of the post-resurrection living person, that's when I talk about the Christ uh-huh. who has passed through death and now living in the fullness of life. And that's where Paul writes, it's, he's now no longer Jew or, Jew or Greek, no longer um, man or woman. So 
those boundaries that are d distinct for a human person, for the risen Christ, it's boundless. There are no boundaries. And some of the Asian theologians who I've read have a, this much more cosmic understanding of the yes, Christ. Yes. yes, yes, that's right. Hi, I'm Sandy Cornish from the Office for Social Justice, and I've been speaking with Professor Mary Colo about justice and love in the Bible the parable of the labourers in the vineyard, the Good Samaritan, and how to make sense of scripture. This podcast is part of a series for the Word of God Sunday. I hope you'll join us again at the Revolution of Tenderness.